Well, as I think I shared with you guys, um, a couple of weeks ago, Beth and I had what I would call the wonderful, awful experience of taking our oldest child to college for the first time and leaving her there. And it was wonderful in the sense that we were very able to clearly articulate and to see how it is that God had sort of put the whole deal together, really. I mean, item after item, thing after thing, where we just saw how it all lined up in a way that just clearly indicated to us that God had prepared her for this place and God had prepared this place for her. And so that was very comforting to us. That was very exciting to us. That creates for us a sense of anticipation that's been affirmed in the intervening three or four weeks now that she's been gone. But it was awful in the sense that the whole time we were there, as fun as it was to walk the campus and move her into her room and bang holes into the walls and hang stuff up and decorate and all that kind of stuff, we knew, and it was kind of climactic, so it built that, you know, I mean, eventually we were leaving. And at that point, we would see the door that one of my friends told me, you will see the door. And I said, what door? Which is what you're wondering. And for us, it was the door to her dorm room. It was the door that would separate us from her. Because she was on one side of the door and we were, you know, chin quivering, walking down the the stairwell and walking out the front of the building and getting in our car and driving seven hours away. And what I want you to see is that even though we knew, hey, look, this is the Lord's will for her and consequently this is the Lord's will for us, doggone it. It was hard. Separation is hard. And I say that because as we return again today to our study of the book of Acts, as we pick up this study of the life of the Apostle Paul, his sufferings that we're just like in the middle of as we're going through this study and as we take up again this idea that life is mission, that my life and your life is not ours to spend the way that we wish, but instead to follow Jesus means to get up every day and to die to the life that you might otherwise wish. So that you can live right where you're at the mission of Christ, which is to take his gospel mercies and his gospel message to a world full of people that have eternal souls and need Christ. All right, well, as we pick up our study again today and we begin to look once again at Paul today, what we're going to see today is that this mission involves separation. In other words, it requires us for the glory of Christ for the salvation of the world, to knowingly, willfully, and intentionally separate ourselves from people and things that otherwise, guys, we'd hang on to, but that we're able to let go of, and here is the whole key, we're able to let go of in light of eternity, in light of the fact, as we talked about last week, that this life really isn't all that there is, and that our stories do not end in a grave. They just don't. So we pick up our study today in Acts 26, beginning in verse 1, where we once again find the Apostle Paul stuck in that first century prison in Caesarea that we talked about last week. And again, not to be overly indelicate, but where is the bathroom in that cell? Where's the shower in that cell? You know, where's the sink for crying out loud? Where's the air conditioning system when it's sweltering in the summer? Where's the heater when it's freezing in the winter? And what kind of mattress do you think he slept on? Did he have a mattress? When we pick up the story at this point in the narrative, he has been there for over two years now, and his hopes have been recently dashed. He was hoping that when the last governor of Judea, whose seat was there in Caesarea, 
left office, which is what he did last week, Felix, the old governor left, that maybe Felix on the way out would finally let him out of prison because Felix knew, everybody knew, that he was being held there for no reason other than the political expediency of these guys that governed over Judea. But he didn't do that. He left him there, and here comes the new governor, a guy named Festus. And if you've done your personal worship, what does Festus do? Well, you know that as soon as Festus comes into town, he takes office. He goes up to Jerusalem to introduce himself to the Jewish religious establishment. Again, he is the new governor of Judea, so, you know, good that he gets to know who he's governing and who their leaders are. Very politically savvy move on his part. But he gets there, and what does he get? He gets an earful about how these guys want to kill Paul. And in fact, they give him an earful all the way back to Caesarea, where he is now having to have yet another hearing with Paul who gets the very distinct impression at this point in the story that he is never going to get justice here in Judea. And so he plays the only card that he has to play. He's a Roman citizen. And so he says, all right, here's the deal. I'm done with this. My appeal to Caesar. My appeal is to have these legal proceedings transferred from here to Rome, and the emperor himself is going to hear my case, and you're like, whoo, good news. No, the emperor is Nero. So when you think that you're going to get justice out of Nero as a Christian, more so than you're getting in Judea, that tells you something about the rulers in Judea. Hang on to that. And that's a request that Festus cannot legally deny. He has to do it. Oh, you made the appeal? Okay, well, then that's it. Off you're going to go. But he can't just send him off. He also has to send a report that describes the case, that defines the issues that the emperor himself is going to read and rely upon in hearing Paul's case. The problem is Festus is new to the area. He doesn't understand Jewish laws and customs and all that stuff. So you can try to explain it to him, but it's like... Ah, you know, so it's very fortuitous that he receives a visitor who comes to pay his respects to the new governor, and the visitor is Herod Agrippa II. Lots of Herods in the New Testament. But the point is that as Jesus appeared before a Herod, so now also will Paul, and Herod's family has lived amongst the Jews and intermarried with them and so forth now for generations. So he's like an expert in Jewish law and customs and all this stuff. So Festus has this visitor and he says, hey, maybe you can help me out with something. I've got this guy, Paul. He's appealed to Rome. I have to write this report. I have no idea what to say in this thing. Can you just hear his case and then help me write this so that the emperor can read it? And Agrippa agrees. We pick up our study today in Acts 26, beginning in verse 1, right at the beginning of this hearing that Agrippa takes charge of. And Luke writes this. He says that, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. But when you're reading through it, you've got to stop and go, his defense of what? His defense of his life as mission. That's what? A life that involves separation after separation after separation after separation after separation that make absolutely no sense in this life. That can only be made sense of in light of the next. That's the Christian life. That is life as mission. 
Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense and he said this. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are, unlike Festus, familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And now he says this. He says, my manner of life from my youth. Now, hang on for a minute because we're talking about separation. What does that recall? Recalls his upbringing. It recalls his family from which he has been separated for what, like decades? And by what? For what? For Christ and this mission. And guys, he's been separated from them, not just physically, because yes, he's been traveling all over the place and planting churches and all that stuff, but he has been separated from them in other ways as well. He says that his manner of life from his youth was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem and is known by all the Jews. He says they have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Here's what we know. Paul's dad was a Pharisee. Paul was raised as a Pharisee. His whole family was in all likelihood full of Pharisees. He was so personally brilliant and his future was so promising that his parents invested, no doubt, big bucks to send him, not to Harvard, it didn't exist, but to send him from Tarsus, which is a long way from Jerusalem, to Jerusalem to be trained at the feet of the most famous teacher amongst the Pharisees of that day. It's a big deal. His dad's, you know, like sporting the school of Gamaliel hats and shirts and everybody's thinking, wow, you know, your son is amazing and what a future he has and this. And I mean, you can imagine all that kind of stuff. I think you should imagine all that kind of stuff because then I want you to imagine how exactly his family must have reacted. Not only when he reject Pharisaism, and thus the religion of his entire family, but then turned around and devoted his entire life to preaching the rival gospel of this one named Jesus, whom the Pharisees themselves put to death, public enemy number one. Do you think they were happy or sad? Elated or devastated? Joyful? Oh, wow, we're really proud of you, son! Or angry and humiliated. You think they reached out and embraced Paul and said, you know what, it's going to be okay. Or do you think they basically wrote him off and said, it's as if we never knew you. And how do you think that felt to him? And not just his family, guys. All of his friends. The mission involves separation. And here's what I know about Paul. I know that he preached the gospel to his family and friends. And I had to take that to heart this week. I really did. Now, they did all agree still on one thing, and that was the resurrection from the dead. They did not, however, agree on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the issue. And so Paul goes on in verse 6, and he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the very promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope even now, he's saying, to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. And what's the hope? 
It's the resurrection from the dead. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead, that this life is not the only life there is, that our lives do not end in the grave, and that that fact changes absolutely everything? It certainly did for Paul, which is what he goes on to relate. He says, I myself was once convinced, kind of like my accusers are, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. He's saying, they know this. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, meaning to make them curse Christ, which they would rather die than do. Why? Well, certainly not because they thought this life is all there is. They were willing to separate themselves even from their own lives in light of the life to come. He says, look, I... I, I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But then as he goes on to say, that all changed when I saw the resurrected Jesus. And let me tell you what else changed. Paul's prosperous career changed. Really, I mean, like it went up in smoke. Poof, gone. He went from being this prosperous, ladder-climbing, chief in the class, most promising of Pharisees, most zealous of Pharisees, good grief, Paul's the man kind of a guy, okay, to being a tent-making nomadic missionary, rejected by his people. Now, think of the separations involved in that. Think about that. He's willing to do that. To endure that, his reputation changed. He went from being the guy that everybody was following, from being the guy that everybody was consulting, from being the guy that everybody wanted to be around, to being the guy that nobody wanted to be around. They were running away from him or they were chasing him down, but now so that they could put him to death. His comfort level changed, and not just socially and relationally. We covered that piece. But even physically, listen, for example, to the summary of the sufferings that Paul endures And that he gives to us in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. That's a beating. That's a whipping. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. And by the way, he wrote that before he went to Jerusalem, was beaten half to death by the crowd, and whose life was only spared from that crowd by the intervention from the Romans, was snuck out of town and thrown unjustly into this prison and then unjustly held there 
for more than two years. And again, the bathroom is, the shower is. What did he eat? Which makes, I think, the next thing pretty remarkable because let me tell you what else that this mission, that this Jesus, that this gospel dispossessed him of. It separated him from his ability to hate pretty much anyone. As evidenced here by the fact that he is found here preaching the gospel and pleading for the souls of these people that he so distrusts, he'd rather appear before Nero than. And who are robbing him day by day by day of a life that he'd much rather take hold of. Paul goes on here to give them his testimony, which we've studied through twice already in this book of Acts, and to plead with them from the prophets that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the risen one, in whom is life. And you get to verse 26, and he calls them all to faith. He says to Agrippa, he says, for the king knows about these things relating to the resurrection of Jesus that he's just outlined again for them. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? The idea being, if you do, then you must believe also in Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, I know that you believe. He just wants him to admit it. Agrippa's not willing to admit it, so he kind of deftly, deftly, you know, puts him aside with a comment. He says, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. But here's what faith says. Faith says, yeah, okay. I mean, we could do without the chains too. That would be just fine. But here's the deal. Even in the chains, Paul is better off than that king. And why is that? Because this life is not the only one there is. Because my story, your story, his story, that king's story, everybody else's story will not end in a grave. And so then Luke says that the king rose and the governor and Bernice, who was the king's sister, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they're going to take counsel together, they said to one another, this man is is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, which is maybe a little bit of a rebuke, he says, this man could have been set free, maybe even should have been set free is the idea. We find no fault in him. Sound familiar? This man could have been set free. If he had not appealed to Caesar, the mission involves, however, separation. It requires us, at least at times, for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of the world, to willfully, knowingly, intentionally dispossess ourselves, to separate ourselves from people and things that, honestly, we'd rather hang on to, but that we're able to let go of in light of eternity, in light of the fact that this isn't the only life there is, in light of the fact that our stories don't end in a grave. So anyway, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we gathered with our little girl and we laid hands on her and we prayed for her. We walked out and the door shut and I looked at it. 
Then we just got out of there as fast as we could, you know, went down the stairwell, walked out of the building, got in the car, drove seven hours, not to Fort Lauderdale. We went to Naples, very good move. Spent the night in a hotel and walked the next day up and down the beach, really rehearsing God's goodness to ourselves, you know, to us, all the ways that we see that. And uh, feeling a little sorry for ourselves as well, I think I can say. So it struck me as being merciful and ironic that as I'm sitting there in the Naples hotel room, I'm reading this book on the life of Adoniram Judson, and I read about another father. Judson was a missionary in the early 1800s. He was one of the first missionaries sent out and funded by the American church, he and three of his friends. At the age of 25, he devoted himself to taking the gospel to people that nobody else was taking the Gospels to, which for him meant taking the Gospel to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. It's near India. And his motto, and he repeated this motto throughout his life, is devoted for life. Devoted for life. So before he leaves to go, you know, to Burma, he goes around and he's trying to drum up support amongst the American churches and, and he stays in the home of the deacon of one of those American churches and he falls in love with the daughter of the deacon. So beware if you have an attractive daughter and you bring an attractive missionary into your house, okay? Unless she has a heart like that girl. And unless you have a heart like her dad. Her name was Anne Hasseltine. A month to the day after Judson met Anne, he wrote this letter to her dad. And if I can, I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to remember, this is the early 1800s. So like, if you're going to send your daughter off to Burma, slim are the odds that you'll ever see her again. You can't get on a plane and go to Burma. You know, you just, there's no cell phone. There's no texting. There's no Facebook. There's no Skyping. There is nothing. The only way you can communicate, and it's very unreliable in that day, was by means of a letter that you put on a ship, which would be taken to some port, and then they'd put it on a ship and take it to some other port, and then they'd give it to this guy and go, well, it looks like you're getting a little closer to Burma. Why don't you take it to... It took like four or five months to get a letter if it arrived at all. Talk about a shutting of a door. Judson says this. He says, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and to her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. But then he says this, and it's the key. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? 
and for the sake of perishing immortal souls, and for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Now, you know, I was a little bit tender when I read that, having just said goodbye to my daughter. I'm not going to lie. But wow. That's the question. For him, for me, for you, really. Can you consent, he's saying, to this most difficult kind of separation? And I do think probably that is the most difficult thing. If you ask me to go to India and you had to make a choice, me or her, sign me up. Simple. I don't even have to think about it. Uh Uh-oh, degradation, me or her? Okay, uh, no, no, I'm in. Violent death, me or her? You know, if I can't choose neither, if there's no door number three here, but the calling was on her. I want to say to you that this kind of separation makes no sense in this world. What is the message of the world? The world comes to us and says, listen, guys, this life really is all that there is. It actually does end in a grave, okay? And so here's the deal. Save your time. Hoard your money. Don't take any relational risks with your family members or with any of the people in your office or with any of your friends or with anybody in your social circle by talking about Jesus because that just might be offensive. That might create a barrier between you and them. Your comfort, your plan, your safety, your health, your ability to insulate yourself from all of the risks and dangers of this world, that is supreme value number one. And whatever you do, do not risk your kids. That's the message. I read this and I thought, where are the Jetsons and Ann Hasseltines of our day? Look, they do exist. There are some one of the sons of one of our elders, together with his brand new wife, probably within the next two years, will be going to a place that they can't even tell us about for fear of putting themselves in danger and unnecessary risk. So it does happen. But why doesn't it happen all the time? Why cannot we be missionaries right where we are in our families and in our offices? Why do we not take these risks? Why is it that the American church, generally speaking, Christians spend more money on dog food than missions, rarely does someone tithe, and we don't have time to read the Bible? And I don't say that to make you feel bad. I'm saying, seriously, why? Do you know why? Because we say this life is not all that there is, but we don't live like that. Life as mission is coming to live like that. And the rubber hit the road for this dad. Can you consent to this? In light of eternity. And this broken-hearted father said yes. Woo! Wow. And he married his daughter off, he and his wife, 
to Judson, and then he put them on a ship, shut the door, and walked away. So that's that. You say, yeah, but what happened next? I mean, how did her story end? Well, (laughs) I can't relate the whole of it to you, but I will tell you. She endured outrageous hardship, unbearable sicknesses and illnesses, incredible persecutions and degradations. Her first child, the little boy, was born on one of their journeys at sea in the filthy hold of a ship with rats and stuff all around. And it was caught in a storm, like to add insult to injury. And he was stillborn. Her second son, a little boy named Roger, was born, and he was their delight for eight months. And then he died. Her husband, at some point, because a war broke out between the Burmese and the British, and, well, they were American and at least English-speaking, was taken prisoner in a prison called the Death Prison, because that's where people went to die quickly. And day by day by day, this woman lived under the stress of, I need to somehow find a way to feed my husband, and I need to plead with all of the governmental officials not to kill him because it's like his execution was always impending. And for 21 months, she ran around bribing people, paying people off, helping, doing whatever it is that she could to keep him alive. Finally, he's delivered, and she becomes ill. But it looks like she's getting better, and he is conscripted into the British kind of help to try to negotiate the treaties because he speaks the languages and all of that stuff. And while he's away, she suffers a torturous death. She dies of smallpox at the age of 36. And then her third child, a little girl, died six months later. But that wasn't the question. The question was, how did her story end? That's the question. That's the question for her, and she answered it before she left. It's the question for me. It's the question for you. So I'm going to tell you how it ended. Anne Hasseltine's story ended in the world of glory. With a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise redounding to her Savior from the many heathens saved, and many were, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. And where, incidentally, just as a really, I think, incredibly important aside, she was reunited forever with her parents, with her children, and about 30 or so years later, with her husband who ministered amongst the Burmese for over four decades, devoted for life. What life? Well, for this life. But in light of what life? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? In light of the next. The mission involves separation. It requires us for the glory of Christ and for the sake of the salvation of the world okay, to just separate ourselves from things that honestly, you know, we'd rather hang on to. And if this life is all there is, well, it would make sense for us to hang on to. He who dies with the most toys wins. That is profane for a Christian.
We're willing to let go in light of what is already ours in Jesus. And what is that? Eternal life. Eternal glory. Guys, what life are you living for? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, we realize that it is a table laid at the expense of the life of your Son. The one whom himself was separated from heaven, from all of its comforts, from all of its glories, from all that in fact he alone deserved and deserves who entered into this world as a peasant, a poor Jewish slave of the Roman Empire born to a peasant family and who suffered for our good that we might not be separated from you but united to you by his means. All manner of degradation and even a very violent, unjust death. But Lord, you did not leave him in the grave. That was not the end of his story, and thus it will not be the end of our stories. God, you raised him up. And you have given us this supper. This evidence. This remembrance, this moment that Jesus commands us to come to regularly. And at which we remember not just what he's done in the past, though that would certainly be more than enough, but it's even more than that. It's far greater. What we come to remember too is what lies ahead for us. You have given that to us in a tangible way. Real bread. Real juice. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us here and that you would challenge us to live for the world to come. Amen.